Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh... I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, there's absolutely everything you need to know about me. Yeah, the podcast, though, well, title gives it away, really. I'm here to talk of the stories of film, and I tend to talk about production stories, development stories, marketing stories, release stories, all the bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The movies I tend to cover in this podcast, well, they're mainstream leaning, really. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. I just love to celebrate the fact that films get made. It's really hard to do so. And so I like telling the stories of ones that have managed to get over the line. I'm delighted to say, too, that this podcast episode is sponsored by the wonderful folks at cinemaparadiso.co.uk. They are an online DVD, Blu-ray and 4K rental company. And for monthly subscription fee, you can get uh, physical media. I love physical media. You can get physical media delivered to your door. And what's more, for Film Stories readers and listeners, there is a 30-day free trial. So if you go to cinemaparadiso.co.uk and enter the code FSTORIES, F-S-T-O-R-I-E-S, you get a 30-day free trial of their services. So lots of discs delivered via raw mail to your home. Awesome. And with that, I'm going to get on with talking about the films in this episode. As always, I'm going to play you a clip first. In this particular instance, we're going back to 2003. Let me play you a short snippet from the movie Concerned, and I'll come to the story the other side of this. Our eyes reflect our lives, don't they? I can see as well as you can. I can feel... Everything you feel. In fact, I can feel exactly what you feel. He said he's a mirror for me. I need to know where the hell he came from. The same blood runs through our veins. It was as if part of me had been stolen.
that then was a clip from Star Trek Nemesis, released in the US in 2002 and in the UK at the start of 2003. Directed by Stuart Baird, this one, screenplay by John Logan. Story credited to Logan, Rick Berman and Brent Spiner. The cast, Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn, Gates McFadden, Marina Sirtis and a young Tom Hardy in this one as well. The story of it, well, it began really with 1998 Star Trek Insurrection, which is the ninth film in the Star Trek series, and it, it hadn't gone down as well as the eighth that Jonathan Frakes had directed the eighth film, Star Trek First Contact, returned for the ninth Star Trek Insurrection, but the box office was down, the acclaim for the movie was, was tempered really, and so it, it wasn't really a foregone conclusion that Paramount Pictures would go ahead with a tenth film, not least because because the, the, the Star Trek Interaction was the third movie to be spun out of the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation and the cast of that series had been tied predominantly to three movie deals. So the problem instantly that Paramount had should it decide to press ahead with a new Trek movie was that it would have to renegotiate with the cast members to reprise their roles in the movie and that wasn't going to be cheap. Uh, Patrick Stewart, in fact, talks about this on the disc release of the movie, and he said that it was a surprise, really, when the call came in that actually, after, well, I mean, a four-year gap, they were going to do another Star Trek film. The catalyst for it, though, would be a chat between Brent Spiner, who plays Data in the film and the series, who'd at that point been taking part in a Broadway production of 1776, and a friend of his um, by the name of John Logan. Now, Logan had... Well, he'd, he'd written a movie you might have heard of by the name of Gladiator, which had gone on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. It had uh, earned him a Best uh, a, a best Screenplay Academy Award nomination and it had been a huge hit. Thing is, John Logan, too, a huge devoted Star Trek fan as well and friend with Brent Spiner. And the two of them started talking and they came up between them with an idea for where Trek could go forward next. So Logan then met producer Rick Berman and said he wanted things like ships, uh, spaceships crashing. He wanted Romulans. He wanted Remans. He wanted a sexy young antagonist, he said, with a personal connection to the character of Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart. And um, he quite wanted a wedding in the first scene as well. And this, this passed muster with Berman that he thought there was something in it. Logan was also top right near the top of the Hollywood Rolodex at the time studios wanted to work with him and so he went away to start putting his drafts together now at the heart of it was uh, one of the things at the heart of it was the idea that in the second Star Trek film they come up with a foe who was worthy of the movies the character of Khan uh, playing opposite William Shatner in that film they wanted to do the same for the character of Jean-Luc Picard and so they had various different ideas for just how they could do that. Could they, for instance, have um, a, a son of Jean-Luc Picard? Could they have two Patrick Stewarts playing opposite each other in the same film? And in the end, what they, what they settled on was a clone story with the character of Shinson, who would ultimately be played by Tom Hardy in the movie. 
also in the midst of all of this, they were they were conscious going in that this really was likely to be the last next generation film. And so all wrapped into this was part of a story of a family coming to an end. The idea of moving characters to different places by the end of the movies, as opposed to what the previous next generation films had to be, which is some degree of mid story. But there was going to be a finality in theory to this. Uh, Logan certainly foresaw a movie that would be an end of an era. He didn't necessarily see it as the end of the next generation cast full stop, but certainly going back to the idea of moving people to different places of, of, for instance, that wedding at the start of the film between the characters of Will Riker and Deanna Troy, of the character Will Riker finally getting a promotion and, and a different job, of uh, Beverly Crusher, the character of Beverly Crusher as well, also getting another different job. And with all these ingredients, John Logan duly put together his screenplay. Now, Rick Berman was encouraged enough to start seeking out directors for this. And the incumbent was Jonathan Frakes, who, as well as starring in the, in, in the movie, what well, he directed the last two. And so the offer did go into him. Would he be interested in, in doing this one as well? Um, but he turned it down. And he talked about that in hindsight as a mistake that he he, he argued at that point that his, his agents were saying, saying you're just being known for directing Star Trek films. And in fact, he was working on a family movie called Clockstoppers at the same time, which would go on to be something of a success. He'd follow it up with the live action Thunderbirds film, which would not be a success. But as Frakes would tell Vulture fairly recently, it's glib to say it now, I wish I'd, I'd done Nemesis. What Rick Berman thus decided to do was cast his net towards an outsider to the world of Star Trek. And this would ultimately cause some degree of consternation, which we'll come to. But someone who also could bring more action to the franchise as well. That what Paramount was really looking to do and what Berman was looking to do was a film that would appeal to the inbuilt audience of Star Trek fans, but also try and do a broader crossover. Could they get more people in? It's just like, well, the way to get more people in is to have action and to have like dune buggy chases and stuff like that. Well, that seemed to be the theory anyway. Step forward then, a man by the name of Stuart Baird, who'd successfully jumped from the world of film editing and check out his film editing credits. They are extensive, particularly in action cinema as well. Well, he'd made the jump to directing two movies, which had done, which had, had mixed responses. Executive Decision, which I've covered before on a Film Stories podcast, that went down well. He then followed it up with the Fugitive sequel that didn't have Harrison Ford in it, US Marshals, that hadn't gone down quite as well. But nonetheless, both had returned tidy amounts of money for Warner Brothers and neither had sent him to movie jail. So he was very much in the running for the Star Trek film. Now, the problem was Stuart Baird knew practically nothing about Star Trek. He, he hadn't watched it. He didn't know the characters. He, he was aware of the name. He knew that it existed. And as, as he would admit to Starlog magazine, it's February 2003 issue. I'm not sure what made me the right man to direct Nemesis. You'd have to ask Rick Berman and the studio about that. Well, Berman in the press notes and even the official press notes of the film are cagey. And he says, even though Stuart knew less about Star Trek than any director we've ever worked with, I was immediately impressed with him, said Rick Berman. He got what Star Trek is about and he came in and gave this movie a look and feel that we haven't hadn't done before. While at first I wasn't well acquainted with the Star Trek universe, in doing some research I found myself quite taken with it amidst Baird. I mean, it's all faint, isn't it? But nonetheless, Baird was appointed as the director of the film and he would, I mean, it, it was it was full steam ahead. 
Now, the, full, the, the key piece of casting in the midst of this, given that most of the cast was already in place, well, I, I mentioned to Ron Perlman, who came in as the Riemann Viceroy, but it was this villainous role of Shenson, who could basically be the foil for Patrick Stewart's Jean-Luc Picard in this movie. And that's where Tom Hardy came in, then really at the infancy of his career. I mean, he'd been known at this point for a small role in Band of Brothers. He'd appeared in Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, but with the best will in the world, he, he's what you would call an unknown at this point. He went through an extensive audition process, and but what they were looking for was someone who could mirror and reflect Patrick Stewart. There had to be some degree of physical similarity that they, they, they could get out of the actor who took on the role, but also someone who could act. I mean, Patrick Stewart, hugely acclaimed actor, and you have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. And it was Hardy that bubbled to the top. And in fact, Stewart and Hardy would spend an awful lot of time just chatting to get it right. Hardy would study his mannerisms and really throw himself into the role. In terms of other casting, though, well, I mean, other Star Trek series were ongoing at this point. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager. And it's just like, well, what kind of crossover can they do? How can they broaden the appeal still further? Now, one character who was particularly popular in, in one of those shows was the character of, of Seven of Nine, played by Jerry Ryan. And she was being lined up for a role in, in what became Star Trek Nemesis. Uh, but whilst the studio was keen and, and she was popular and she played to what, you know, what, what they were trying to do to broaden the appeal of it all. Um, it was said to be Ryan who called BS on it all because there'd been talks of her character having a pretty sizable role in the film and appearing in the wedding that had been planned for the start of the movie. But she argues just like, well, the, the, my character has never met these characters before. It'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it, if I just turned up at this wedding? And I mean, in the end, the cameo they went with was uh, Kate Mulgrew, who played Janeway in Star Trek Voyager. And she was rustled up for a quick cameo in the movie. And it's fair to say it's a bit jarring as well. Um, but nonetheless, the, the story, a bit more came out on the Jerry Ryan story in the years afterwards, because as Marina Sirtis would tell the crowd at Star Trek Las Vegas in 2007 at that particular convention, she said, when I was negotiating for Star Trek Nemesis, they literally threatened to fire me and recast Troy, the character she plays. Well, not actually recast, but they said, we're going to fire you and hire Jerry Ryan. And I said, well, Jerry Ryan won't do it for that money, that's for sure. But it also goes to the fact that Jerry Ryan's role in the Star Trek film, as Ryan herself had hinted, was expected to be more than the cameo that Kate Mulgrew ultimately got. Nonetheless, eventually the deals were were signed with the Next Generation cast to make their returns and Star Trek Nemesis would begin official principal photography at the end of November at, 2001. It would be filming the Mojave Desert, not far from Edwards Air Force Base. The official press release marking the start of production wouldn't go out for a week or two later. That was published on December the 11th, 2001. But basically, the new Star Trek film, after years away, it was back underway. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for a start, Stuart Baird and the cast, they, I mean, there was, even at the time it was quite guarded, the, the, the press comments between them all, that it was said, I mean, it was noted up front that Baird's knowledge of Star Trek wasn't great. And that it was said, the, the rumours at the time were it was causing some degree of friction. Now, Baird would say, you know, if anyone felt that I was doing something or suggesting something that just wasn't in character for these characters, that these figures, 
figures that they'd so established over the years. And he told this to Starlog. He said they would say, I don't think I would say that or I don't think the character would do it quite that way. And Baird said they'd discuss it more than likely not shoot it two ways because he came from an action cinema background. I mean, the, the, the one the one particular piece of authorship he had over the film was generating the action sequences for the movie that he was constrained by what he had to do in a Star Trek movie and that was said to be quite frustrating for him that with with things like the the buggy chase that we get that was very much him and he knew what he had to shoot he'd edited so much action over the years uh, he, he shot a lot more coverage than he was used to shooting but he knew how to piece all this together in the editing room there was still another director on the set, of course. There was Jonathan Frakes and Baird again. I mean, he he addressed the he addressed the issue of the fact that the director of the previous two films was next to him on the same set. And in that Starlog interview, he said he was purely an actor in it. Um, Baird was not said to have sought directorial advice off Frakes, and he said of Jonathan Frakes, he didn't show any resentment. I don't think he could have even directed Nemesis because he was finishing a film of his own, Clockstoppers while I was preparing for this one. There were no awkward feelings at all, Stuart Baird said. As is always the case with a Star Trek production, there's no shortage of uh, people having to spend hours in the makeup chair for Michael Dorn and Brent Spiner. I mean, they were used to it. For Tom Hardy, this was new to him. I mean, he had to have a new nose made at one point, as well as he had to be squeezed into a very tight rubber costume as well. Steady. And as he told IGN, actually, of the costume, he said that whole suit was very constricting. It didn't allow much movement because his whole life, Shenson's whole life, hadn't allowed much movement and so it helped even though it had a mind of its own and I couldn't move in it anyway. It might have seemed to have worked more practically on screen but what it allowed to, uh, what it allowed to portray was that I was uncomfortable. Stewart, uh, Patrick Stewart would be uh, vehement in his praise for Tom Hardy. He said he thought Tom came through splendidly, that there, there were a, those adjustments made to Hardy's appearance. A makeup designer, Michael Westmore, had a bit of work to do there. And as, as Westmore would say, since Tom doesn't have a cleft in his chin because his nose is quite different, I had to sculpt a latex nose and chin for him. And of course, I shaved his head. And when the two of them did profile shots or when they were in scenes together, there was definitely a feeling of relationship between them um, but they weren't identical now even though Baird hadn't necessarily sought Jonathan Frakes out for advice Frakes did say to uh, did have a chat or two with, uh, with the new director he said it's not easy to come into someone else's house so I tried to prepare Stuart for the familiarity of this group I explained that there's a certain roundiness among us that he shouldn't interpret as a lack of respect. We're wild and childlike and we roughhouse with each other and kid each other constantly. But it's all in good fun. Digging under the surface a little bit more, you don't have to look too far on the internet for reports of a bed apparently not knowing the names of, of characters and actors and hints of a degree of distance between one or two cast members and him that I'll come to shortly. For Baird's point of view, though, going back to the constraint that he was feeling, because his side of the story, I mean, he, he does a director's commentary on the disc, but it, I mean, he, he doesn't give an awful lot of the game away. He was said to have been frustrated by coming onto a film where he had to work with sets that had already been pre-built, props that had already been made, character relationships that were already in place. And he was inheriting you know, hours, dozens and dozens of hours uh, of pre-existing story and, and stuff that had been established and having to try and put 
his stamp on it, which is why, I mean, it, well, the, the, those action sequences seemed so important to him. Although notably reading some of the feedback on the film, I put in inverted commas, uh, in, after its release, it was the action sequences that one or two Star Trek fans seemed to find the most jarring. What I kept finding as well while researching this particular story was a lot of a lot of time when interviews are done around the time of a film's release that they, I mean that there's just this positive uh, this positive vibe to it this kind of we got to sell the production but right through I just got senses of this one not that a, a, a production in heavy trouble or anything like that but just a degree of discomfort I mean th there's a pointed moment on the disc for instance in one of the featurettes on there and this only came out months after the film where LeVar Burton said that having John Logan there meant at least somebody was paying attention to the scripts and I remember just looking at that and just thinking well what aren't you saying there because there, there, there's something isn't there one person who was feeling the pressure as well, as well as Stuart Bed, was Tom Hardy. And, and this was his big movie breakthrough role. And he would tell Total Film Magazine a piece about it, about the 17-hour days that he had to he had to work on it. But also the fact that he arrived on the set three months into the production, that all the stuff on the Enterprise ship had already been shot by the time he, he was got there, or the vast bulk of it. And he, was, he described himself as terrified. He said, every day on that set I was terrified, which worked for the character anyway. Way. He says, you can't hide that. The camera will pick it up. I was genuinely out of my depth. The whole thing was, how can I do this? And he said, I took it very seriously with my technique. I didn't have a single drink when I did it for three months. Friday night, nothing. I'd never been so focused in my life. I couldn't get the job done otherwise. And he described the, the, the whole notion of walking onto a film like that when half of it had already been shot as straight in, out of the frying pan, into the fire, get on with it. Production then wrapped on Star Trek Nemesis in Los Angeles on March the 7th, 2002. That left a gap of what? Just shy of nine months, just over nine months until the film was going to premiere. It had cost around $60 million to make. So there were some commercial expectations on this one. The cost of Star Trek movies was, was creeping up. And there's a story that one or two members of the cast had to bring their salary down just to be able to get it made for that amount of money anyway. Heading into post-production, though, I mean, Stuart Bed had shot a lot of coverage and producer Rick Berman said that the first cut of Star Trek Nemesis was 45 minutes longer than the final movie. And it's pretty well known, not least because nobody hid the story, that there was nearly an hour of footage that ended up filmed but not used for the movie. Now, I wouldn't suggest that's massively unusual, but in this case, what the, the, the implication was that there's a film in, in the editing room somewhere that was focused a bit more on characters and a little less on the action. That said, when we talk about missing footage from a Star Trek movie and deleted scenes made it onto the disc, there, there, there's a lot of post-production work on certain sequences to add the necessary effects and to give them the, the, the look of a Star, Trek, uh, a Star Trek production. And quite a lot of those sequences, they, I mean, it was decided they were being cut out fairly early, so the effects work was never really completed on it. I don't think you're going to get a, Snyder, a Zack Snyder cut of this one. But what we got was a flavour of some of the material that was cut by the fact that so many deleted scenes have made it out into the world. So there were sequences with the character of Data. I'm going very spoiler free, but a pivotal movie for that character. There's more of Shinsen's backstory and the brutality he'd had to endure before we meet him properly in Star Trek Nemesis. That there's hints of that, certainly in the film, but it's it, there's, there was a lot more that we weren't shown. And then there was a new ending as well 
compl- a, a different ending to the movie that popped up on the DVD that would have seen the Enterprise getting a, a refit with the suggestion that seatbelts have been added to the captain's chair and a moment where a new first officer is brought in to replace the character of Riker, um, uh, uh, taking advice from, right, from the character of Riker for a comedic moment as well, as well worth seeking out. Also, Will Wheaton, uh, a Star Trek Next Generation alumni, he was brought back in a cameo role, but in the actual final cut of the movie, all you get is him in the background of the wedding sequence, whereas actually what you get in a deleted scene was a, a longer conversation between him and Patrick Stewart um, that ultimately wasn't used. But the, the, perhaps the most fan-lauded deleted scene that made it onto the disc was what's known as the Chateau Picard scene, which uh, a prolonged conversation between Jean-Luc Picard and the character of Data. Those scenes are out there. There is talk of fan edits of of Star Trek Nemesis as well, but the official cut of the film has never changed. What was curious, though, in the build-up to the release of this one was given that Paramount had invested more money than usual in the Star Trek movie, was that the marketing was said to be on the on the tame side, really. And when the movie was ultimately premiered, I mean, it, it brought in Star Trek fans initially, as you'd expect, when it came out on, on when it had that premiere on December the 9th, and then it was released on December the 13th. 2002 in the US and its opening was I mean its opening was fine there was there, there was no great big huge problem there it opened with an 18 and a half million box office return just behind Made in Manhattan just ahead of a film called Drumline as well but it opened into a really really competitive time in the marketplace now it hadn't helped that the reviews weren't great it's one of those films that Star Trek fans weren't particularly happy with and the broader audience that Paramount was trying to recruit, well, they weren't particularly interested in it either. Uh, the, the old cliche is it falls between two stools, but it's quite hard to, to come up with a better cliche to describe just what happened here. The, the other problem was, I mean, it had arrived, what, four weeks after the new James Bond film, Die Another Day, and as much as Die Another Day has its critics, at that point it was the biggest James Bond film of all time, and then, wouldn't you know it, a, a week or two away was the second Lord of the Rings film. And and to, to say that Star Trek Nemesis got squeezed at the box office was no understatement at all. In fact, by the time it had completed its box office run, it had only managed $43 million in the US, another $24 million overseas for a worldwide gross of $67 million, which, I mean, as Star Trek Insurrection had been a commercial disappointment, and I, I don't think there was much hiding from that. This, though, well, it, it was another level down, really, and it prematurely brought to, the, brought to an end the Star Trek Next Generation crew's big screen adventures because Star Trek Nemesis had left things open for another movie. There was there were bits and bobs left there that it could have picked up on and John Logan was certainly interested in doing it. In fact, as Patrick Stewart would tell Dreamwatch magazine six months after the release of Nemesis that Spiner and Logan had been chatting about an idea and he said it's totally unlike any other Star Trek movie, something that would really shatter the format of it but it would be a hard sell but the problem was it would be a hard sell at a point where a film that was supposed to have been an easier sell into the Star Trek world just hadn't sold at all and so Stuart six months after Star Trek Nemesis's release was accepting that he wasn't part of the saga anymore and in fact, even then, cuttingly, he added that I think if ever there was a real need for an extended edition of any of the work we've done, it would be for Nemesis. It wouldn't be a director's cut of the film. That might be even shorter, but maybe an actor's cut. Ouch. Ouch. 
it would be remiss of me too not to acknowledge the fact that it sort of ruined the odd number, even number pattern of Star Trek movies where the odd numbered ones are supposed to be not very good. The even number ones are supposed to be really good. Um, Nemesis. Well, let's just say that it caused some debate over whether that still stood. I mean, I don't mind the film personally. I can't claim to be a, a hardened Star Trek fan. I think it's a flawed, but but. A pretty entertaining little movie, really. But as a, as a sign-off for the crew of a TV show, much loved by people around the world. I mean, it, a little bit damp. I think we could. I, I think we could get away with calling it that. It's pretty well known too, it's worth noting, in the aftermath of the film's commercial failure that Tom Hardy didn't take the failure of the film particularly well and he would end up battling his addictions in the years that followed uh, before clawing back his career with the title role in the movie Bronson and he's rebuilt his career from that point forward but it was said to be quite a blow for him at, at that point. And as time has gone on as well, other participants have come forward with their criticism of the movie. I mean, Marina Sirtis at the uh, Destination Star Trek convention that took place in London in 2014 and Michael Dawn, they had an onstage conversation. And Dawn said of Nemesis, we knew it was the end, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, it was sort of like it was a tough shoot. And there were a lot of different things happening to which Sirtis inter interrupted and said, oh, come on and say it. The director was an idiot. Patrick Stewart, meanwhile, he would he would contrast his final big screen outing as Jean-Luc Picard with his final big screen outing uh, in the in the X-Men saga. And he said, Hugh Jackman and I were so thrilled when the last thing we did for X-Men was Logan. It was the best X-Men experience we both had because we were the same characters, but their world had been blown apart. Next Generation didn't end like that. In fact, our last movie, Nemesis, was pretty weak. Brent Spiner was a bit more defensive. He would say we've been told in almost no uncertain terms by Paramount Pictures that this was going to be our last film. So I thought it made a lot of sense to leave the audience with a really big, dramatic, emotional moment at the end of the film. Again, no spoilers here. If that's the last time you were going to see the character again, that's the way it should be. You know, at the time, I thought it was the right way to go. In the aftermath of Nemesis, I mean, on, on the big screen, Paramount opted in the end to do a, a total reboot of the Star Trek franchise that the keys were handed over to, again, someone else who wasn't a massive Star Trek fan at the time, J.J. Abrams. What he would come up with in 2009, I would suggest, turned out a, a, a lot better than Nemesis did. Although, there's, again, it's a film that faces criticism from within the Star Trek community. But I thought as a big entertaining blockbuster, I thought that one hit the mark a, a, a lot, a lot more than Nemesis did. On the small screen, the Next Generation cast have finally had a better swan song as well, at least more screen time in uh, Star Trek is really having a resurgence at the point this has been recorded with a series of small screen projects, Star Trek Discovery, for instance. But it's Star Trek Picard, really, that's seen the return of regulars, particular Patrick Stewart, getting to finally do the, the ultimate swan song for his character, something that's ongoing at the point this has been recorded. For Stuart Baird, he hasn't directed a film since, although he's continued to build his incredible editing career. And, and again, his list of credits really is something. And it makes Star Trek Nemesis really something of an oddity in the in the big screen Star Trek canon that there, there was a sense. And, and I've read some really interesting articles from Star Trek fans researching this, that there's a better movie in what they, in what was shot. But little inclination now, all this time later, to put that movie together. Will that change? I doubt it, really. But nonetheless, as has always been the case pretty much since it started, Star Trek continues to find a way to keep going.
Which brings me to the halfway point of this episode of Film Stories. I am, I, I, if I can just one or two little requests and plugs, that I am an independent podcast producer. I'm a nerdy man who sits in a room without a big company behind me. I've only got this far to have, I think this is episode 167, 168, by your word of mouth and by your support. So if you do like this podcast, please do ideally leave me a hugely positive review. Please do subscribe to the podcast. I think the language of that's changing. You're not subscribe anymore. It's follow podcast. I don't mind really just click the button that would help me enormously and and it fools the algorithm and makes everyone huge friends and makes the world a better place or something like that i also have uh, film stories print magazines you can find all of those at store.filmstories.com co.uk there is the monthly magazine which um, 100 pages each month film with film mayhem and junior magazine for under 15s that's also available too and if i can give another shout out to the wonderful cinema paradiso.co.uk don't forget that coupon code f stories to get a 30-day free trial of its uh, of its dvd blu-ray and 4k rental by post service now though i'm going to move on to the second of the two films i'm talking about in this episode i'm going back to the 90s should we have a bit of a sing-song to introduce this one? Why not? This time we're back in 1992 for Sister Act, directed by Emile Ardolino, written by Joseph Howard, although not written by Joseph Howard. We're coming to that shortly. Starring Whoopi Goldberg, Maggie Smith, Harvey Keitel uh, in, in the lead roles, along with Bill Nunn, Kathy Najimy, Wendy uh, McKenna in there as well. And the story of this one, well, it goes back to the person who wasn't credited with writing it, a man called Paul Rudnick. Now, Rudnick had, um, I mean, in the mid to late 80s, he was just about to start start his legendary column in Premiere magazine but he was I mean he was looking for a film to write he was looking for his first screenplay and he talks about this in his book I Shudder which I've had a lot of fun reading this week and he, he describes in there how he was lying on his couch trying to come up with the idea for a film screenplay and he began thinking about drag and wondering why a guy in a gown this is his quote is so often funnier than a woman in say a dapper three-piece suit and so what he decided to do was try and think about a disguise or transformation story that might be more fun for a female star and so naturally enough as most of us do he started thinking about nuns he came up with the idea of a plot about a showgirl who witnesses a gangland hit and this would remain the core of sister act and he would take influence from the likes of some like it hot films like that with this showgirl then hiding away in a convent as a nun and his quote nuns can seem dictatorial sexually repressed and scary and therefore entertaining 
So with this idea hatching in his head, he took it to producer Scott Rudin in around 1987. Rudin liked it and straight away Rudin suggested, well, uh, Bette Midler's name as a result of their conversation came to the fore. Now, Bette Midler at this stage, I've written about this in Film Stories magazine, actually, was in the midst of an incredible comedy run. She was one of two comedy performers who landed uh, a long term contract, multi picture contract with a studio in the 80s. Eddie Murphy was one at Paramount and Bette Midler at Disney was the other films like Big Business, Outrageous Fortune, Ruthless People. She just had this ongoing stream of hits and she was signed up to this multi-picture deal and that multi-picture deal left her production company was thus set up at Disney. So she seemed logical. So Paul Rudnick thus duly pitched the film to Disney executives at a meeting that was pulled together in New York and the project pretty much sold straight away. Disney was in. Rudnick's looking at it thinking, well, this is easy. They're making movies. What could possibly go wrong? He went away and wrote a treatment for the film rather than the full script. He said, I wanted his quote, I wanted Sister Act to be a satire of sugary family perennials like the sound of music, the singing nun, the flying nun and such parochial school romps as the trouble with angels and its sequel where angels go trouble follows. He wanted his nuns not to be old stuffy nuns. He wanted younger nuns in there. He wanted his lead character, then called Terry Von Cartier, uh, to be a nun who embodied sex and raunch. Pope versus pop versus pope. Uh, was that was the quote he came up with and he wrote that's how adult or innocent or crazy I was because I actually believed that Disney would make a movie that tried to defeat the Catholic Church he wrote this treatment he took it to a meeting at Disney in Los Angeles and he's I mean going back to his book I mean his observations on the executives in Disney who were then all sporting Little Mermaid action figures that had just come back the Little Mermaid was about to be released and would transform Disney animation at that point but he talked about the faux family a friendly family atmosphere at Disney and he said the VP was holding what looked like a brightly coloured cardboard purse Paul look he exclaimed tilting his purse this way and that it's the Little Mermaid happy meal and he described this vice president as friendly and welcoming and he said I noticed a framed photo of a softball team on the ledge behind him that's from our company picnic the vice president explained it was so much fun and so Rudnick asked about the other grinning sunburnt people in the picture all wearing team Disney sweatshirts and masketeer ears and the vice president thinking about it realized they'd all since been fired Again, those are his words, not mine. Nonetheless, there was clear enthusiasm from Disney for this particular project. And Rudnick went off to write the full script. It was again, it was his first movie. He pitched the idea. Then he was being paid to write the script. It was it was all going well. More meetings in Los Angeles followed, but this time things started to get real because now Bette Midler and her team were in attendance. But Midler was wrestling with whether she could play a nun on the big screen because in the late 80s, early 90s, well, you're going to run the risk of offending a fairly sizable religious audience. I'd suggest that's still a risk now, but perhaps lesser so. So could she do it? And Midler would wrestle with this, with this conundrum really for months. And during that time, Rudnick kept writing drafts. Notes were coming back from Disney, but she was still attached to the film. But a year went by when this was all going backwards and forwards. And it sort of came to a head when they suggested at one of the meetings in Los Angeles that Rudnick go to a convent to do some further research. Midler liked the idea and off Paul Rudnick went to a convent to meet um, someone by the name of Mother Dolores Hart. Now, Dolores Hart had been an actor in Hollywood who left to become a nun in her 20s. 
mid-20s. I think it was. Rudnick could go and have a chat with her. That would inform the script. It would unlock everything. Everything would be perfect. He never met her, but he did interview other nuns. He took his research back to Disney. But it wasn't ultimately deemed of much use. And by this point, Midler, she got cold feet on it and she decided to pass on the project. She'd go off to make a film for Fox, actually, called For the Boys with James Caan. I think that's an underrated movie if you get a chance to see it. I think it's one of those that's just popped up on Disney Plus Star, um, the, the adulty bit of Disney Plus, although I don't suppose they want me to call it that. Um, but she passed and Sister Act was dead. Rudnick's contract was up. Um, that was it. It was all just off it went. Now, a lot running parallel to a lot of this was the, the the hunt for a director for the movie, because at the point where it looked like it was being fast tracked. Well, one name who cropped up and he's confirmed this himself in an interview with The New Yorker was Pedro Almodovar. Now, that's a bit of an oddity, him directing a film for Disney, particularly at this point, given that the films he'd made were what, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. He didn't seem logical for a Disney movie at that point, but nonetheless, producer Scott Rudin sought him out and offered him the film. And it was Al Madhavar who turned it down. He said, maybe it's because I didn't trust my English or maybe it's because even though they always tell me I'll have artistic liberty, final cut, there is always a moment when I don't believe it. One person who was directing, therefore, for Disney at that point was Emil Ardolino, who just completed Three Men and a Little Lady for the studio, the sequel to Three Men and a Baby. He'd had a, a hit and a half uh, in 1987 with Dirty Dancing, which I covered back in the early days of this podcast. And th this, he got sent the script and he told Film Review magazine in an interview that was published in 1992. I thought it was really funny. It made me laugh out loud a couple of times, which doesn't happen too often. I was also attracted to the potential of the music and really felt like doing another musical. Now, Ardolino had won an Oscar for a music documentary and his skill in, in choreography and putting musical films on screen was, was even at that point, uh, it was just highly lauded and he just seemed like such a logical choice for it. So he was interested, but Bette Midler was gone. And But it was months that gone by after Midler's departure when Ardolino got a call asking how did he feel about Whoopi Goldberg for the lead role. And so a meeting was com uh, convened between the pair and Goldberg was quick to ascertain that she wasn't being forced onto Ardolino. This wasn't a, ca a case of a, star, a director being told this is the star you have to work with. And he confirmed that wasn't the case. And I mean, the film review article in 1992 actually said that, that, that she had a reputation for being outspoken and a little difficult, which strikes me as 90 speak for a woman actually having a view and voicing it. And thus, that's how she had to be pigeonholed. That's certainly how it appeared to be reported in that article. But Goldberg, a brilliant comedy performer, she'd had hits with Jumping Jack Flash and Ghost had, had just won her an Oscar as well. And she had input. I mean, she her comedy brain is sharp, a strong writer. She wanted to change the name of the lead character to Dolores. That was an easy, an easy win, really. And with her on board, Rudnick uh, was back as well. Paul Rudnick came back and he went in to meet uh, Emil Ardolino. The film Ardolino won an Oscar for, by the way, was called He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing. And Ardolino was making sure Rudnick was now included in things like the casting. And um, I mean, going back to the I Shudder book, Rudnick writes, the script for all, for uh, called for actresses of all shapes and ages, although the Disney exec still squabbled over which nuns should be, um, how do I put this? Uh, let's go with cluckable cluckable let's go with that i think i can get away with that 
Mark Shaman by this time um, was on board as musical director. He was pulling together a choir of nuns for the movie. I mean, he'd go on to do things like the Hairspray musical and stuff like that. And his career is... is, is Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant as well. And he also had a Broadway background. So for the wannabe nuns, he brought in dozens of Broadway and cabaret and recording artist stars. And again, I've got to quote Paul Rudnick as well. So, um, Mark Shaman, Scott Rudin, Emil Ardolino and I were all intravenous users of original cast CDs. So let's not mince words. In that room, Angela Lansbury was Spider-Man. Uh, at the point all these musical stars were coming in and auditioning for the film, they were in heaven. Against this backdrop, though, well, the, the less heavenly bit. Uh, Rudnick was having to rewrite again. Disney notes kept coming in and coming in and coming in. And, and he would say they were always phrased in the most positive, supportive, gee, wouldn't it be great if tone. And that was the problem. Rudnick described the experience of getting notes from Disney executives as being trampled to death by cheerleaders. Disney had also awoken to the potential uh, material problems here that, that any sexual content was being pulled back out of the movie. The sharp edges were being blunted and Rudnick quit. I mean, it was less and less his film and he wanted out. And it didn't help that at the point that Goldberg came in, there was a very small window to rework the screenplay before production would begin because Disney want, didn't want to delay the start of filming. That he'd, put, he'd had managed to secure a start off the 23rd of September 1991 and it, it was determined to get this up and running. Lots of people came in to do rewrite rights. I think seven people in the end came in to do rewrite work. Carrie Fisher was one. Robert Harling was another. But all they had was a week or two. Nancy Myers was in the midst there as well. Uh, all they had was like a couple of weeks to change the screenplay, really, from Midler to Goldberg and be ready for the start of filming. And as Ardolino would tell Chicago Tribune, an article around the time the films were released, I mean, it was just impossible. It would lead to script chaos throughout the production. Now, by this time, the rest of the cast was in place. People like Bill Nunn, Harvey Keitel, Maggie Smith, Kathy Najimy, Wendy McKenna. But the script wasn't finished and filming was beginning. I mean, it, it, it was that straightforward. And as a result, the filming just wasn't easy. I mean, Goldberg and Ardolino were butt heads a few times. And he admitted that in the film review interview, occasionally we did have a battle of wills. But I think the difficulty was that we were writing as we were going along. Sometimes scenes would be written just two days before we shot them. And that puts an enormous pressure on the director and the actors to think on their feet. And he said, when you have to do that for a couple of months, it gets very draining. And that's what made the situation difficult. And it got to a point where scenes were starting to shoot that hadn't been fully written yet. They were shooting the start of the scene. They didn't know ultimately where it was going to end up. Ardolino would say in a Chicago Tribune piece, it put Whoopi and me in a difficult position. It's problematic to be shooting out of order. And then suddenly you come to a scene that hasn't been written yet. What precedes it? What follows it? And these were the puzzles they were having to unlock. At the heart of it, though, Ardolino and Whoopi Goldberg were, were collaborators and they describe it as there was trust between the two of them. That if there was something she wasn't sure of and Ardolino really wanted it, she'd give him a take or two of it usually. And oftentimes that would be what ended up in the film. Going back to the Chicago Tribune piece, it noted Whoopi had problems with the studio at some point, but she and I, we, we had to actually do it, which meant every day there had to be a scene that was shot. Ardolino said, we never had a blow up, nor did we have a situation where we didn't get something in the can every day. We both complained from time to time because it was difficult, but we just got along. We got along just fine. 
One area of uh, disagreement between the pair, just to give an example of it, was Ardolino had originally resisted the idea of Whoopi Goldberg doing her own singing in the film. And he recalled, he told this to Film Review, the first time I heard her sing, it didn't sound good at all. But she went off to a singing coach, built up over a couple of weeks, and she got away when she when she came back and, and delivered the tune. Ardolino was convinced that's why you get her singing in the movie. Not every nun is, uh, is, gets their singing in there. Some of them are dubbed, but Goldberg is, is the real deal in there. Just to add to the time pressure that they were facing on all of this, it's worth noting as well that they had, what, less than three months, really, to, to get all this in the can, that filming would wrap up on the 20th of December, 1991. But the film had been made. It, it, it had got going. Paul Rudnick's first script, that, that had got a green light. But when Disney then approached him and, and just told him the good news, he wanted to take his name off it. He argued that the film's screenplay had come a long way from the one that he'd actually written. It wasn't his anymore and so he suggested a different pseudonym to go under because he didn't want his name on it and he suggested screenplay by goofy disney wasn't best keen with that though which uh, and he, he just went with the pseudonym joseph howard in the end and it wouldn't be until adam's family values he'd done some work on the first adam's family movie but he got to write adam's family values that he would get a, a far purer experience of writing a film and i think the joy of adam's family values is there to be seen again i've covered that one before on the podcast the movie was uh, was ultimate. I didn't have a long post production period, but then really it didn't necessarily need one. It came out on May the twenty ninth, nineteen ninety two, in the US, and it, I mean it got a really good it got really good reviews from critics. That I mean it was a big crowd pleasing movie that was filmed on a you know the budget was thirty one million dollars, and the movies it was up against that summer: the Batman Returns, the Alien Threes, the Lethal the Weapon 3s were far more expensive, but Sister Act would become the sleeper hit of summer 1992. That the movie would open the uh, open that weekend, May the 29th to the 31st in the US, with $11.8 million opening weekend. It would knock out Alien 3 had opened the week before. That was duly knocked down to third place. Sister Act was in second. Lethal Weapon 3 was in the top spot of the chart. Also around at that point, far and away was there basic instinct was there beethoven beauty and the beast had been hanging around in the chart for 29 weeks at that point and uh, i mean wayne's world was still at number 12 16 weeks after its original release bottom line here was sister act was a big surprise hit it would go on to to take well its box office return around the world would be 231 million dollars of which what 130 140 million of that was in the us it would be one of the top 10 films of 1992 and uh, i mean I mean, bluntly, nobody really saw that coming at the point the film was greenlit. But when it hit and it hit big, you, you better bet Disney wanted its sequel and wanted its sequel very, very quickly. The problem was that, well, Emil Ardolino wasn't really keen on doing it, that he'd done one sequel before the, the I mean, he'd done Three Men and a Little Lady. But in that instance, he hadn't directed the first film. Um, he, Leonard Nimoy, directed Three Men and a Baby. So at least he could come in and the characters were fresh to him and he could put some degree of his own stamp on it. Um, thus, when Disney decided to fast track Sister Act 2 back in the habit, as it was cunningly called, Emil Ardolino wasn't uh, wasn't back to direct. 
it would be Bill Duke who would be in the director's chair for that one. But also in the background of Emil Ardolino's comments, so there was there was a sad story that, that was really coming to the fore because whilst he whilst he put the line out that he wasn't interested in doing it, he was also he was also increasingly ill. That straight after Sister Act, he'd shot a filmed version of The Nutcracker that starred Macaulay Culkin and that would be released in cinemas. And he did shoot a movie with Bette Midler, ironically, called Gypsy, a TV movie. But he wouldn't get to see either of them. Both would be released uh, the year after. But Ardolino would pass away at the age of 50 due to complications from AIDS uh, in 1993, just before the release of the Sister Act sequel. I mean, the Sister Act sequel didn't uh, didn't do the business of the first one either. And whilst there are plans now, finally, for a third Sister Act movie, which is apparently coming to Disney Plus, uh, any plans that there were at the time were abandoned when the second film ju just didn't really hit the commercial heights of the first. It's worth noting that there was a lawsuit filed against the movie in the summer of 1993. This claim that the plot of the film had been plagiarised by a book called A Nun in the Closet. And Disney actually offered to settle this one out of court for a million dollars. But that offer was declined. And then Disney went on to, to win the case in court. Sister Act 2, it's worth noting, would also have a life on stage and continues to have a life on stage. It's been turned into a hit Broadway and West End musical. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg has appeared in that as well. And now it's kind of all eyes are on. Where does it go with the third film? Will it be a remake? Will it be a sequel? Will it just be a retread? Either way, it's going to have, going to, have to go a long way to, to capture really the hit out of nowhere that the original movie was. And it's, it's hard to describe just what a bolt it was in 1992. So Whoopi Goldberg as box office gold, um, but also the fact that it's rewatched so frequently just just tells you that they just captured something there. Uh, a tribute to the late Emil Ardolino, whose story doesn't deserve to be uh, underplayed to any degree in Hollywood, and I really hope it hasn't be, um, been underplayed in this podcast. Certainly, Sister Act is basically just one of many tributes to the work that he put on screen. Which brings me to the end of this episode of Film Stories. I just want to do a couple of shout outs to people who support me on Patreon. If you want to support this podcast, it's patreon.com slash Simon Brew. Um, the, the wonderful folks at the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest podcast, they support this podcast on Patreon. It's a ce celebration of under 90 minute movies with a special guest each show. You can find that on all your favourite podcasting platforms. Uh, likewise, if you can follow uh, the, the Instagram account, Rewilding Film, that's uh, one of our Patreon followers, Rick Rawlings, is making a, a folk horror film inspired by the tales of Mr. James. Uh, any other Patreons who want a shout out, just leave it under the comment when I put this on the Patreon page. If you want more of my waffling, you can find it on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash film stories. And every weekday, our website, filmstories.co.uk, a whole host of film stories go up there and news stories and all movie nerdizy bits and bobs uh, all waiting to be discovered there. And as I've mentioned before, you can buy our magazines at store.filmstories.co.uk. For now, though, I'll leave you in peace. And as always, thank you so much for listening and lending me your ears and lending me your support. Uh, I hope you all take care and I hope you stay safe. I'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories. Bye bye. 